come from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and then Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, and they'll be on the screen for you as well. So first from Genesis 127. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And then from Psalm 139, 13 through 16, the writer says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And so may God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of God's word. You may be seated. This is week three of our series Silver Screen Sundays, and what we're doing is looking at popular movies of mostly this year, and then we reserve the right to pick one from previous years as well, and we're looking for goodness and truth and beauty. In other words, we're looking for the gospel and popular art of our day, and some of us were raised in churches where it was this, there was this hard line between the sacred and the secular, if you know what I'm talking about, and, and people were told they had to tear up their secular records. And, there's this idea that you can only get truth and goodness and beauty from quote-unquote Christian art. But perhaps if God is the creator, and we're all created in God's image, everybody, every, every person on the planet, and there's goodness and truth and beauty, and if, if, if he is the way, the truth, and the life, and, and, and maybe, maybe all truth is God's truth. And we can look at popular art, and no matter what it is, and we can see shades of the gospel story and goodness and truth and beauty in popular art. And so that's what we're doing in this series. And, and today we're talking about The Greatest Showman. This movie is special to my family. My family absolutely loves this movie. Hannah loves it. Our boys love it. They dress up like P.T. Barnum. Graham has a hat. He asked me today, it's our eight-year-old, he said, could I wear my costume today? And I'm like, well, you could. You'll be in kids. And so, you know, but, and then our, our little guy, he loves to sing the songs too, our three-year-old. And so, you know, Hannah will just be driving down the the road on the way to school or something and both boys would be in the back and they just sing these songs at the top of their lungs and I remember one day um, taking our little three-year-old out uh, for a little daddy day with him and and uh, we put this song on or one of the songs and he because he requested it and uh, I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw him back there with his eyes closed and just singing his little heart out and it brought tears to my eyes as I was driving because you know he he feels it so there's something in this music that is inspiring to him, even as a, as a little child. And so you've probably been inspired by these movies as well. And then, of course, when you get out your phone and you try to video them, they totally stop. 
or it gets really quiet, and that's just one of the ways that kids torture their parents, and you all know what I'm talking about. And so, um, but uh, it's an inspiring movie. This is an easy one. It's easy to find the gospel, the good news in this movie. So it's based on the life of P.T. Barnum, who was a museum owner and later a circus promoter of the 19th century. He was born in 1810, and he died in 1891. And throughout his life, he was a serial entrepreneur. He was a state legislator in Connecticut, and eventually he founded the Barnum and Bailey Circus. Now, when he was younger, he founded a museum to promote hoaxes and curiosities, human curiosities. And it essentially was a quote-unquote freak show. He found people who were different in some way, and that's what it was referred to, And he put those people on display. Now, he was a controversial figure because, really, he was trying to make a buck. He he did this for money. The film presents a more positive message of his life. But Barnum did this for money. And uh, he made an enormous amount of money from these performers by finding people who were different in some way. And then putting them on display. Uh, For example, uh, the, the phrase Siamese twins originated with Barnum because he found these two Asian-American men who were joined together, and they both married sisters. And they had children between them. They lived, they lived a life, you know, uh, together. But he, he put them on display and, and, and others. Uh, and, and some of that, uh, he, he did not have um, the greatest of intentions when he did that, and so we need to acknowledge that. But the movie takes some artistic license with, with Barnum, and it puts the circus earlier in his life, and then it, it tells a more positive message Uh, from the eyes of the performers, really, what it meant to the performers, the people who were viewed as different in the eyes of society to be promoted and to have a special place and to be able to show off their talents and be who God created them to be and to prove to the world that they have worth and value as they are, that they are created in God's image. And so this is a movie that beautifully uh, portrays uh, that message. It's also a movie about the indescribable pain of believing that you're not worthy, that there is something about you that, that other people don't like, that they don't accept, and the alienation, the loneliness that a person can feel, the shame that a person can feel, the belief that they are somehow unworthy or that they have to pretend to be somebody else or that they have to hide who they are. Because some, somewhere out there, there are other people who will not approve of who they are. And so ultimately, it's a movie about overcoming that and, and saying, this is me. And, and not hiding any longer, but coming out of hiding and, and showing the world, this is who I am. And I'm okay with that. And, and God loves me. And I'm a person of value. And so the movie begins by Barnum uh, hiring performers to perform in his circus, and and he puts out some ads for curiosities, people who are different to respond to him, and then some he has to go hunting for in order to recruit them to uh, to be in his show. And so this is a scene of Barnum going out to hire uh, his performers. So Barnum encounters these folks who are viewed as different in the eyes of society. And imagine the life of Annie there, the bearded lady. She, She has been rejected to the extent her face is covered, and then, sir, would you please go away? And he says to you, extraordinary, unique, I would even say beautiful. And he speaks, in the movie, Barnum speaks life into these folks who have felt rejected by society. If you remember last week, and we we talked about the star is born, 
And in the movie, Lady Gaga gives this uh, line where she says, she, you know, she's been told that she's not pretty enough to be a pop star. That was autobiographical. Uh, autobiographical. She said in an interview in People that she was actually told by a record exec, you're, just, you're talented, super talented, but you're not pretty enough to be a pop star. And so when you go through this life and being told messages by the people around us from childhood, and then maybe those messages get reinforced as we get older, or maybe we see other people, and it's not, those messages may not be coming from other people, but they're coming from us. We see other people, and we compare ourselves to them. And for some reason, we just feel like we don't quite measure up. And so we begin to hide. And we say, in a sense, just please go away and leave me alone. And we, we hide who we are. And if somebody were to come along and say to us, rare, extraordinary, unique, I would even say Beautiful. It might even be hard for us to believe that because we believed something else for so long and maybe we've even told ourselves that. There's a song in the film entitled Come Alive and the lyric goes, I see it in your eyes. You believe that lie that you need to hide your face. Afraid to step outside so you lock the door but don't you stay that way. Maybe it is a physical trait for you. Maybe other people don't know about it. There's something about your body you're embarrassed of and you try to hide it. And it's, it's kind of a thing. It doesn't bother you that much, but it's kind of a thing. And, you know, you're probably thinking of that right now. Maybe it's something that really bothers you. Maybe it's something about your personality or about your emotional life or just something that you feel like is a weakness and you don't want other people to know that. And you just you feel like you kind of have to be somebody else at times and hide that. Genesis 1.27 says, the scripture that we read earlier says that all people are created in the image and likeness of God. And in the ancient world, that applied to kings and queens. The common belief in that time was that if you're the Pharaoh or if you're the, the king of the Babylonians or the Assyrians, then you are created in God's image. That applied to royalty. They were created in God's image to rule in God's place, to be God's representatives on the planet. And, and God would act through them to, uh, to do God's will in the world. And Genesis says something revolutionary. When God creates the world, and of course we've talked about that in a series on science that we did a few months ago and how thinking people can, can read this passage. But it says in, in verse, 20, uh, verse 27 that all people, all humans, not just kings and queens, all humans are created in the image and likeness of God. And that means you. And so you now, according to scripture, have the privilege that was only given to royalty in the ancient world. The belief was, no, it's not just kings and queens that are created in God's image. It's you. It's everybody with that part of your body you don't like or with the way that person treated you earlier in your life or the way they're still treating you now or that thing about you that just some people just don't accept. You are created in the image and likeness of God. You are a king or a queen in God's eyes made in his image, and you represent God, and God wants to live through you, using you, all of you, including the parts that you don't like. The message of Genesis 127, and Psalm 139 is a song of praise to God. Psalms means praises. It's a song book. And see, these are song lyrics, and it's a song of praise to God, because God, you know me. You see me, you know me, and you care for me. So from the womb, God sees you and knows you and cares for you and is aware of how you are woven together is the language that the psalmist uses. 
and that God has watched you throughout your entire life. And, you know, maybe you're a parent. If you're not, I'm sure you have people you love and, and nieces or nephews or just people that you adore. You know, and, and you see a little child sleep, you know, every once in a while we'll just look at our boys while they're asleep. And we literally adore them while they're just laying there. They're not doing anything. They're not trapeze artists in that moment. They're literally just laying there and breathing heavily and drooling. And we look at them and we adore them. And it brings tears to our eyes. And we think about how blessed we are to have them. And how much we love them and our hopes and our dreams for them. And how much we want to protect them and provide for them and teach them and help them grow and become everything they can be. And they can be a gift to the world. And all that's wrapped up in just cracking the door a little bit and peeking in. And watching them sleep. And there's that kind of a feeling in Psalm 139. God, you, you, you crack the door and you watch me when I sleep. And you adore me. I'm special. I have potential in this life. I have things to give. I have things to offer. I, there are things about me that are unique about me that nobody else has. And you, you want to help me to grow and teach me and help me to follow you. And you can, you, can, you can live through me and you can resource me. And I can be your representative created in your image. And I can do amazing things. Because I am unique. And it's not, it's not, but I'm unique, so there's a thing. No, it's because of my uniqueness that God can work through me in amazing ways that other people can't do because they're different too, but they have their own unique ways. And so God, you see me and you know me and you adore me and my uniqueness. In other words, it's a way of saying you matter to God. You were important to God. Since we started the church in April, I, I've counted at least three different people at different times who have told me that they struggle with imposter syndrome. Who knows what imposter syndrome is? Have you heard of that phrase? And they're not imposters. They're not fakes. They're not faking anything. Imposter syndrome means that when you look at your own success or your job or your responsibilities, you feel like you're just not quite up to it or like you don't deserve what you've achieved. Or like, you just can't live up to that challenge in front of you. Or, you know, if people knew who I really was, then they wouldn't think so highly of me. Or it's just, it's rooted in this, this fear, this insecurity, that even if I've already accomplished something, I've already done it, and it's in the past, somehow I don't deserve that. I don't, some, I don't know how that happened. And, and so I'm not, I'm not good enough to have done that. And if people knew that, they wouldn't like me. It's this, this deep-rooted insecurity that I'm just not worthy of the success or that I've attained or the success that I would like to attain. I just don't deserve that somehow. And, and I remember uh, there's an author named Rob Bell, a pastor and an author named Rob Bell that some of you know. I remember him talking one time about writing his first book. He sold lots of books. And when he was writing his first one, he said half of his energy at least was wasted asking himself the question, am I really a writer? Can I write? And that's really a shame question. It's, am I worthy enough to write? And he said, finally, he talked with a mentor of his who just said, you know what? Stop asking yourself if you're a writer and just write. And it's all going to work out. And it definitely has in, in his life. I'm a hack guitar player. And so I, I'm, I'm uh, hesitant to even talk about it, you know, compared to the people that we have who, uh, who play music here, but I'm a hack guitar player, which means that I like to sit around and watch YouTube videos and pick out solos from like rock songs that I like. 
And so late at night, you know, I'll watch a video and I'll try to, I'll just like slave over this guitar because it doesn't really come naturally to me, but I still like it. And I just, I just learn these parts to these songs that, that I've listened to for years. And I just like doing that. And there's something that happens every time in me that I have to kind of catch. And if you, you know, if you're trying to learn an instrument or whatever else that, you know, you can compare this to in your own life, you see somebody who's so good at it that you compare yourself to that person and then you just kind of feel like a loser. And so I'll be trying to, I'll try to learn a Jimi Hendrix song. And then, you know, and so, and, and I'm just kind of like, donk, 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 and Hannah has to hear it from the other room. And then she, she totally lies to me and says, that sounded so good, honey, afterwards. And so I'm just dinking through this song and, and perfectionistically trying to learn every note just like he played it. And then at the same time, comparing myself to him, which is a hopeless cause. And, and I have to be very, very careful to realize that I don't, comparing myself to Hendrix is nuts and that he wasn't working this hard when he was trying to play the guitar. Maybe you've heard it said, comparison is the thief of joy. When you compare yourself to somebody else, and this can happen subconsciously, even when you're just doing something, you know, like a diversion, like trying to, trying to pick out a, a Jimi Hendrix song, it can happen subconsciously. And you find yourself comparing yourself to somebody else without even realizing it. That sister from years ago, that person in your class, that person at work, the person your parent favored, somebody you really admire, somebody who just does it naturally and you wish you could do it naturally like that. And you find yourself comparing yourself to that person or maybe somebody who looks a certain way that you think is perfect. The airbrushed magazine cover. And you find yourself comparing yourself to somebody else and somehow there's just like this sinking feeling like sir just please go away please leave me alone there's this desire to want to hide that and and compare yourself to that person but comparison is the thief of joy I have a buddy who works uh, pretty high up in the office of an NFL team and recently uh, he uh, he came out for a visit and he um, he was talking about his team searching for a quarterback, like a free agent quarterback. And he said what, what the team is looking for is not some guy who has to work super hard at being a good quarterback. Like, like the commentators on TV would say, you know, he's a, he's a little guy and he struggles in so many ways, but he has such a great work ethic. And he's just such a hard worker. He's, that's not who they're looking for to be their next quarterback. He said, what we're looking for is a guy who can drive down the street with the window down and toss a football through a tire swing in the front yard without looking. That's who we're looking for. In other words, we're looking for somebody who's a natural. We're looking for somebody who doesn't have to work hard at it. I mean, yeah, there's practice and there's, there's developing skills, yeah, but it just comes naturally. So people are like, wow, how, how does that person do that? And then, of course, other people will compare themselves to that quarterback, but here's the lesson for all of us. Instead of comparing myself to Hendrix, which is never going never gonna to work in my life, never going to get me anywhere, here's my question for me. What am I naturally good at? What is it that's unique about me? That's my gift to the world. Even if I would never say that or I'm, I would even be ashamed to say that. Whatever, whatever is my just driving down the street and throwing a football through the tire swing, and it just comes naturally to me. That's my talent. 
And maybe I'm passionate about that. Maybe I've experienced pain in my life. And I think, you know what? I don't want other people to experience that same pain. And so I'm going to use this thing that I'm naturally good at to help other people avoid the same kind of pain that I felt. It's been said that our greatest passion often comes from our greatest pain. And it's in that moment when we stop comparing ourselves to other people and we look at what is unique about us. And all of us have this. You may not even believe me right now that you do, but you do. The truth is you do. You believe lies for so long that it's hard for you to believe, but, but you do. What is it that's unique about you that's different about you? And then you couple that with your passion. That's your gift to the world. That's your Hendrix. Because he wasn't working hard at playing guitar solos. Yeah, he practiced. He probably played other people's songs too. Same with Jimmy Page. I found a quote from Jimmy Page, the guitarist for Led Zeppelin. I mean, just iconic rock guitarist. Everybody, you know, everybody who plays guitar has tried to play a, a Jimmy Page song at one point. And he, he gave this interview about recording Stairway to Heaven. And he didn't set out you know, to compare his solo to some other guitar solo. Man, if I could just play like this person. He, actually, what he said was, when he, went, when he goes to the solo of Stairway to Heaven... He said, I worked out how I was going to actually come into it, the first two or three notes. But after that, I just said, roll it, took a deep breath, and that's what I usually do, and then go. Isn't that totally depressing? If you've ever tried to play guitar and play a Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Page solo, but he wasn't working hard at that. Yes, he had practiced, and he, had, he, had played, he played other people's songs, and he probably played until his fingers bled, but when it came down to creating what everybody else admires and compares themselves to, he wasn't working hard at it. He just closed his eyes and just let it go. And we have Stairway to Heaven. What is that for you? It's part of you. It's a part of your experience. You have natural talent in it. You have skills in it. You're gifted. You've honed those. You have passion that may even come out of your greatest pain. And you can just close your eyes and just let it go. It might be hard for you to believe that you have that. It's because imposter syndrome is this lie that some, oh, I, I couldn't have done that, even if you've already done it. But it's somehow there's this trust in Genesis 127 and in Psalm 139 that I am fearfully and wonderfully made and that I am unique and extraordinary and I would even say beautiful and that you have something to offer this world and God can partner with you and work through you, right? And other people will want to copy it. We're created in God's image. And sometimes it's just not that you doubt your ability and feeling like an imposter. Sometimes it's that other people disapprove of who you are. And so maybe your skin is the wrong color or you're the wrong gender or there's something about you that, you know, just other people don't like or some group of people doesn't like. And you've walked with that and you know what that feels like. Zendaya plays a trapeze artist named Ann Wheeler. And the film shows the racism that was common in the 19th century and even up to way more recently than we would like to think. Uh, and of not being allowed to go to the theater. If you saw in the, in the, in the trailer, her and her brother, like there, there are people who aren't even going to like it that we're in the circus. And there's this line where they're going to go to the theater and, and they ask, can we come? Can we come to the theater? And she has this budding romance with Philip, who is Barnum's right-hand man, played by Zac Efron. And and they both know that it's taboo in society. And so she avoids him for a long time. She doesn't want to be rejected. She doesn't want to be the butt of jokes and, and be mocked. 
but they have this romance that they can't deny, and there's this beautiful scene of, of her on the trapeze and, and, and dancing, and, and it hurts worse when the people who don't like you are in your family, when the people who are closest to you don't like something about you or their friends or their neighbors. And there's this scene where uh, they go to the theater together and, and Anne goes to pick up tickets and, and she thinks there's just supposed to be one ticket for her, but there's actually two. But then they encounter Philip's parents um, in the theater. Let's watch. And some of us know the pain of that. And that, that line is so poignant. Mother, if this is my place, then I don't want any part of it. And in that line, we discover why there are so many people who won't go to church. Because what they see portrayed as Christianity in our pop culture is really this, this thing that's wrapped up in politics and people's own opinions and prejudices and just easy ways for politicians to get votes. And they see that being shouted in the name of Jesus. And there are literally, I know, younger people who say, Mother, if this is my place, I don't want any part of it. Going to church would be a backward step for them because the messages that they hear in church, they know, first of all, don't even line up with the Jesus that they're aware of. And at the same time, they know that it's just this, this game, this fusion of religion and politics that is destroying the faith of a lot of people. And causing a lot of spiritual homelessness. That's why we say here, welcome home. But in the next couple of months, uh, in September and October, we're going to go through uh, another round of connect groups. And uh, six-week connect groups, and the sermons are going to coincide with those, uh, with those connect groups. And we're going to study a book together called Making Sense of the Bible by Adam Hamilton, whose video I played a couple of weeks ago. And Adam is a pastor in Kansas City, and he, he wrote this book because uh, there are so many people who have questions about you know, how to interpret the Bible and, and, and difficult passages and things that strike us as you know, they, they're out of place in our society. And so our question is, this, does this express God's eternal will? Or is this something that belongs in the ancient Middle East? And there are Christians, there are conservative evangelical Christians in Chandler right now who believe that they believe every, they obey every statement in the New Testament and they certainly don't. You know, they, they take part of the Bible literally, but then Jesus says, sell all your possessions and give to the poor and come follow me. And then you're like, eh, I think that's a hyperbole. I think that was just a metaphor. Or uh, Paul tells women to wear head coverings in worship in 1 Corinthians 11. And we don't pass out hats to the ladies when they come through the door here. And most churches around here don't do that, but they believe they do. They believe they take every word of the Bible literally and they obey that, they, but they definitely don't. They're fooling themselves, likely no one else. But there are these problematic passages in the Bible that are hard for Christians to deal with. And then at the same time, we look at the life of Jesus. And we look at the people that Jesus surrounded himself with. And he looks a lot like Barnum in this, in this film. The people that Jesus surrounded himself with were people who had leprosy. And he healed them. It was believed that they were unworthy to even be touched if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus touched the man with leprosy. There were women who used to be prostitutes. There were uh, men who were tax collectors, which they were sellouts to the Roman Empire. And, and they, they hung around Jesus. People with no education, the poor, Gentiles, who were automatically viewed as unclean. 
people who were possessed or had a mental illness, and on and on and on. These are the kinds of people that Jesus surrounded himself with. People who were looked down on in society as different. Their uniqueness was seen as a bad thing. And he compared the kingdom of God to a banquet, a party where God invited all of the, the fine upstanding religious people, all of the in crowd, and they said no. They declined God's invitation. And so God sent his servants out to the highways and the byways, and they just, and just invite them all. Invite everybody who doesn't fit in. Invite everybody who feels rejected. Invite everybody who feels shame. Invite everybody who hides and says, just please go away, sir. Invite all of them to the party. That's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what God's leadership is like. That's what heaven is like. Just invite them all. Jesus says that's what the kingdom of God is like. And there were these thugs in the movie who harassed the performers and they eventually burned down his theater because they fear these people who are different. That's what we human beings do to people we perceive as different. In any way, throughout human history, it's the story of human history. We just tend to mistreat people or go to war with people that we perceive as different in any way. And Adam, who wrote this book that we're going to study, he tells this story about Lover's Lane Church in Dallas, Texas in the 1950s. It was a church that was started in the 50s, and it was started on a street called Lover's Lane. And so they thought, oh, this would be a great name for a church. And so they started Lover's Lane Church in Dallas. And uh, they had about 50 or 60 people. And, and so I don't know exactly the details of how it was started, but they called a pastor at that point. It was a pastor named Tom Shipp, who was already known in Dallas because he had created a ministry to people who were alcoholics. People who struggle with alcohol addiction and drug addiction. And he had already you know, shown that, that you know, we need to care. Somebody has to care for people who are struggling with addiction. And when he came to the church, there were a few people who knew that that was his ministry. And one family in particular, they sent a letter to their bishop. This is in the Methodist church where Adam is. They sent a letter to their bishop, and they said, we don't want Pastor Tom here because we don't want this to turn into the alcoholics church. This was a fine, upstanding community. And they, just, they didn't want their church to become the alcoholic church, and so that family left the church when Pastor Tom came. And then in 1961, a black woman named Bernice Jones came to a service at the church, and, and uh, she was the only African-American person in the congregation. This is at, you know, the, the height of the civil rights struggle in the early 60s in Dallas, Texas. And she loved the church, and she wanted to join the church. And in this church, they welcomed people to come up front and, and stand up front, and they welcomed them into membership. And so uh, she went to Pastor Tom Ship. And she said, Pastor Tom, I love this church. I would love to be a part of this church. She said, I know the times we live in right now, it's tough. And, she, and I just wanted to talk to you first. And Pastor Tom said to her, I would love for you to join this church. And I would love to be your pastor. And so absolutely, you're welcome to join this church. And so that day came when they had the, the membership um, class come up front and and. Pastor Tom called all the people up front, and, and Miss Bernice Jones walked up the center aisle. And every eye in the congregation was on her, as she was the only black person in the congregation. And some people were thinking, surely they won't accept her in a membership. But she walked up front, and Pastor Tom welcomed her into the congregation. And there were some people in the congregation who applauded because they were so glad that my church has stood for the message of Jesus and the love of Jesus and, and Miss Bernice Jones is welcome here. Adam says that same week, about 20 families wrote a letter to Pastor Tom. 
And this is the, these are the days before the pastor got the dreaded email. This is when you got the dreaded letter. And, and these 20 families said, um, we are not going to be a part of a church that allows race mixing. And they left the church. That was in 1961. It was not that long ago. And certainly that's not the last time that happened in the United States. But when we hear stories like that, we're faced with the question, aren't we? What kind of a church are we? What kind of a community are we? Are we the kind of community like the thugs in the movie or like the high society who says, what are you parading with the help? Do we perpetuate those kinds of prejudices, those kinds of thoughts and beliefs about human beings that are created in God's image? that God has looked at and adored as they were woven in their mother's womb? Is, are those the kinds of messages that we perpetuate as a church? Or do we follow Jesus who surrounded himself with people like Miss Bernice Jones who were outcasts in their society at that particular point in time? And he, he said when he was asked, what are the greatest commandments? Well, Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the way you love God is by loving your neighbor. You, you know, it's, what do you buy God for Christmas? What does God need? How do you love God? You love God by loving your neighbor. That's what Jesus actually said. And so what kind of a church are we? Are we the kind of a church that says, no, we are not going to be a part of a church that allows this, whatever is taboo at the time. Or are we a church that believes that God is throwing a party and everyone is invited? What kind of a church are we? A few years ago, uh, when we were starting the first church we ever planted, um, a mother sent me an email, and uh, it was about a week, or I, I don't know, a couple of weeks before we went um, to weekly services. And in this email, she said, um, you know, my partner and I live in the valley here, and we have little kids, and it's harder to find a church than you would think. And I'm thinking, no, I think I kind of know, uh, I'm kind of onto this. And... She said, we've been looking around, and uh, it's been very difficult. It's been a painful experience for us. And we were, we were kind of looking to have them baptized, and we encountered a church here in Chandler, and she said the name of the church, and it's not far from here. And I, drive, I think about this when I drive past it. She said, um, the pastor told us that he would baptize our kids in our home, but not in the church. And she sent me this email as kind of a last-ditch effort, I think. And she said, it was, it was astounding what she wrote in the email. She said, I'm not looking for anybody's approval. I'm not looking for people to change their beliefs. She said, we want our kids to learn about Jesus. And we want to bring them to church and Sunday school. And she said, so my question is, if you would just be so kind as just to, get, to answer me. My question is, can I bring my kids to church so they can learn about Jesus and people won't make fun of them, and they won't be told that their moms are bad. And I'd never been asked that question before. Not, that, not straight out like that. And uh, I had to ask myself a question. What kind of a pastor am I? What kind of a pastor do I want to be? What kind of a church do I want to lead? And I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with human history. I know that that Himmler, the architect of the, of the Holocaust, 
actually said the people that he wanted to exterminate were people he viewed as different, who deviated from the norm. That was his language. And he called them deviants and asocials. And those are the people who got gassed and burned. I know human history. And what kind of a pastor am I? And what kind of a church do I want this to be? And so I wrote back, and like Pastor Tom Shipp, I said, I would love to be your pastor, and I would love for you to be a part of this church. And that set us on a journey of something that was very beautiful. And she actually ended up baking the communion bread. We observe communion once a month, just like we do here. And uh, I'll tell you what, I mean, if you grew up with the wafer, her bread was like a drastic improvement um, to the experience of communion. It was this beautiful thing for me, personally. And uh, her family, they, you know, they thrived in the church. But I want to ask you, how would you answer that question? If she sent that email to you, how would you answer that question? Can we bring our kids here without them being made fun of and without being told that their moms are bad? And she knew the reality of the situation. Now it's, it's seven years ago and a lot's changed in seven years, truth is. But how would you answer that question? What, what kind of church do we want to be? And the reason I welcome everybody to participate is because I know that the Bible is difficult to interpret. There are passages that are just hard in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And like I said earlier, people who believe they obey everything they read the New Testament, they're likely fooling themselves but nobody else. You, you can show them a few passages and all of a sudden that's just gonna, that wall's just going to fall down. That's just not the way it works. And that's another reason we're going into the study making sense of the Bible in September and October. Because we want to be thinking compassionate people who deal with difficult issues that affect people's lives. Now I've done that, I continue to do that, but we're all going to do that in this study. And then finally the movie wraps up uh, with uh, Barnum who has been kind of an outcast in high society. He's rich, but he's been rejected by the other rich folks around him just because of the circus and they just think that's lowbrow. But he makes this move where he discovers uh, an amazing singer in Europe named Jenny Lind, the Swedish nightingale. And he brings her over to the United States, pays her an exorbitant amount of money, and he promotes her concerts. And when he does that, it raises his status in high society. And so now he, he was rejected before, but now he's, he's somebody now. And, and the, the rich uh, of the world, they, they, they embrace him now. And he decides he's going to throw a party. And he invites all of his high society friends that he is the new welcome member in now. And he doesn't allow his performers to come to the party because they would cramp his style. He's lost sight of his original calling. And so he rejects these people that he had even spoken life to and, and, and he leaves them out in the cold. And there's this moment where these people have realized they've just come too far to view themselves as people who need to feel shame or to hide any longer. That their, that their uniqueness is something that they can embrace and they have gifts and talents and they don't have to compare themselves to other people. They know that comparison, comparison is the thief of joy and they don't need to do that anymore. They're free people now. And so they just decide to make their presence known. And I'm going to play the video here in just a moment, but this is a lyric video. Uh, it shows this, uh, part of the scene where this happens, where they burst into the room where the party's taking place and other scenes from the movie. But it just encapsulates the, the message of the movie and then you'll be able to see the lyrics on the screen. Let's watch. This is me. Let us create humankind in our image and in our likeness. And thank you that you've seen me since I was in my mother's womb. And I am 
carefully and wonderfully made. And maybe it's, you know, some part of your body you don't like or something about you that you think is not what you want it to be and you hide and, and you compare yourself to others or like Miss Bernice Jones or like the mother who wrote me an email with messages that come from other people. The good news, the gospel for people who want to follow Jesus Christ and be thinking compassionate Christians and do our best to wrestle with difficult passages and figure out what it means to live for Jesus. That's our privilege. That's our calling. That we can proclaim a gospel that says, here's here's the thing in closing. For the people who said, well, we don't don't want Miss Bernice Jones here because we don't want to be a part of a church that allows race mixing. What they don't know is, the people who wrote that letter, God even accepts them. Like the amazing thing isn't that God accepts the people that you don't like and you're not sure about. The amazing thing is God accepts you. Does anybody hear what I'm saying right now? Like, well, they let those people in the church. Like the amazing thing, they let me in the church. Can you believe that? That's the kind of a person who realizes what the good news really means. That the message is to me. It's not, it's not for somebody else. It's to me. That I'm okay. That God, I'm worthy. I'm created in God's image. God loves me, even me. That's the, that's the good news that we hear through the greatest showman. I invite you to pray. God, thank you for uh, this, uh, this scripture that shows us your love for us. It's not the image of God that so many have seen out of the loudest uh, religious voices. The silver lining for me and you know we think about this what happened in the Holocaust and the civil rights struggle and then today the divisiveness today the silver lining for me is that more and more people are are actually acknowledges actually acknowledging who you are not because in you know TV interviews or things that are posted on social media and for those of us who make the mistake of reading the comments afterwards, we realize that um, so many things are said in your name that are certainly not representative of you and lots of other people are realizing that too. Well, Jesus didn't. That doesn't represent Jesus. When they see some of the loudest voices in our culture and and saying like they did, you know, about Miss Bernice Jones that, um, you know, they're not welcome here and it's like we're going backwards and it's just this, this silliness, really, of fear and insecurity. People are at least seeing, wait a second. Even though they're talking about Jesus and Christianity, Jesus wasn't really like that. That's the silver lining. That so many people are realizing who you're not. And so we have the opportunity as a, as a new community of faith to say, wait a second, who is Jesus? Our culture is seeing who Jesus isn't. What does it mean to love your neighbor? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? And we have the, the privilege, really, of being able to, to read your scripture and interpret difficult passages in ways that I mean, Christians can disagree. But we know that the greatest commandment is love. And so if we're going to err, we're going we're gonna to err on the side of loving your neighbor. We'll just have less to apologize for as we get older. And at the same time, when we stand before you, 
we can say, well, you said this is the greatest commandment and I did my best to live that out. God, for those of us who really struggle with the comparison game of feeling shame, there's something about us that we don't like. Maybe, it, maybe it's something annoying, like some physical feature we don't like and we really do try to hide it and cover it up. And that's what it is, kind of an annoyance. We do pray that we, we, we wouldn't be that annoyed by it. It'd be something that we'd just be able to accept a little bit more about ourselves. For some of us, it's a really big deal. For some of us, um, we, we even tell, her, tell ourselves messages that we're not this enough or not that enough and we compare ourselves to somebody else and it steals our joy. And, and even more than that, it, it makes it impossible for us to fully partner with you because we don't, we don't think we can. We feel imposter syndrome or we just feel like we're just not worthy for you to come alive in us and to, dreams, to dream with our eyes wide open. God help us truly to begin to change those messages with Genesis 127 and Psalm 139. I wonder where you sit right now under your breath. If you would be willing to say this under your breath, nobody's looking around, nobody can hear you. And just say to God right now, thank you that I am created in your image. I wonder if you would just say that in your seat right now. God, thank you that I am created in your image. Thank you that I am created in your image. And when you have the, the urge to compare yourself or you fall into that same thinking, you can just repeat that to yourself. God, thank you that I am created in your image. And you want to work through me to make this world better. You want to work through me to accomplish your work of salvation on this planet. If you've received those messages for other, from other people, you say the same thing. God, thank you that I am created in your image. This is me. I am created in your image. Thank you that I am created in your image. Now we're all going to be transformed over our lives. We all grow. But we are, we are loved as we are. God, thank you that I am created in your image.